Hello and welcome to Eureka Nerd. I'm Leah Richards. And I'm Will Davis, a happy man, because today we get to talk about my top favourite nerdism. We've got some structural biology coming up for you almost immediately. We've also got some weird quantum stuff later, but let's focus on what we can actually understand and talk about for now. So yes, right now, the headline that this is under, which is absolutely what initially caught your eye. Oh, under Right? The headline on this press release from the University of Texas Medical Branch is Kinky Biology. I know what you're thinking, but I deleted my browser history. How could anyone know? Now, what the story is actually about is some work that the University of Texas at Austin and the Texas Advanced Computing Center have been investigating the biological mystery of how a meter length of DNA can be curled up into the space of one micron, one millionth of a meter. So that's uh, a thousandth of a millimeter mm -hmm. inside the nucleus of every single cell in our bodies. If anything, they're understanding it with one meter of DNA. It's probably closer to two, about 1.8 meters, last time I checked. Yes, DNA, lots of it in every cell of your body. All of it telling every single bit of every single cell of your body what to do to make it that kind of cell and how that cell behaves to make your body. Most of those cells aren't even yours. And as this mostly relies on the production and structuring of proteins... Well, as our resident structural biology expert, would you care to give everyone a rundown of how proteins and protein structures happen? As the guy with a protein structure tattooed on his arm, I feel like I probably should. And they say there's a metre. Let's go with their definition of a metre of DNA in every cell. That is just kind of if you stretch it out all in a line. Proteins are not a line of DNA. The way that proteins are, the way they work, the way that they make up you, who's listening to this and me talking about it now, they take on different shapes, different forms. From the primary line, they take in secondary structures. They start coiling together into a helix, alpha helices, or platting out into sheets, called beta sheets. The chemical and physical properties of each of those molecules causes springs and corrugations, basically. And then those that take on a tertiary stage, a third form, where the electrostatic charges and the polar attractions in the DNA and the bases start pulling together to make what you might think of if you think of a protein or a bit of a cell, like a kind of a globular lump of stuff. Again, the chemical and physical properties cause these alpha helices and beta sheets to be folded back on each other, folded in on each other, wrapped up into weird blobby knots. Like a self-assembling origami. Yeah. Which are, if the coding is correct and there hasn't been some sort of transcription mistake, which is how most mutations happen, the resulting protein should be exactly the right shape to put itself somewhere useful. The quaternary stage where all of that globule slots into place, sits just right to expose the active part of it, what this protein is going to do, its function, its binding site, its active site as well. So that goes from a line into a 2D shape, almost, into a 3D shape, into a functioning piece of cellular machinery. This big, big molecule, because proteins are molecules, they're just huge molecules. 
comparably speaking. Yeah. If you, I mean, you think about the simplest molecules you can think of, it's like oxygen, which is two oxygen atoms, right? Or water, which is two hydrogen atoms and an oxygen atom. These are hundreds and thousands of atoms. They're really big, whilst also being, you know, sub-microscopic. You are a fascinating world of biology. You are like a grand zoo of weird tiny stuff. And I could talk endlessly about it, but we should probably talk about what they're doing to advance the field, using not just weird, squishy, tiny biology, but then they plugged a supercomputer into it. What the researchers at the University of Texas Medical Branch have done is, by plugging it into a couple of supercomputers, the Stampede and Lone Star 5 at the University of Texas's Advanced Computing Center, it would be Texas where you name a computer Lone Star, wouldn't it? Oh, it's got to be. Which also is part of the Extreme Science and Engineering Discovery Environment, or XSEED, because you've got to love an acronym in science. If you've got a good name and you can reverse engineer an acronym from it, you've... You've I won mean, science. You've, you've justified your job, really. Someone gave himself a good pat on the back the day they came up with XSEED. But what the researchers are doing, and this is being explained by B. Montgomery Pettit, a biochemist and professor at the University of Texas, he describes that this coiling introduces twists and turns and curves and turns a long line into a very complicated zigzagging bundle, and that by reducing a very long line into a very complicated, very compact 3D shape, it can fit into much smaller spaces. That's simple geometry. It's like how you can get a very complicated labyrinth in a very small circle. It's essentially the same principle behind wrinkles on the surface of a brain or the way our intestines are all coiled up inside our bellies. Maximum surface area. And by getting everything very close, very tight, he describes that ideally, all things going according to plan, you can have reduced overall energies and pressures in the molecule. And you were talking about the physical and chemical forces that act upon it to make mm. it take these different shapes. All of that is trying to get to the lowest energy state, so it's not costing any energy to exist. Which does also have a role in the reason proteins deform and stop working quite the same way when you heat them up. So that's one way of making sense of a key facet of biology, which... You know, they've achieved with some very complicated engineering. But a bonus feature of this research comes from what has been described as a long-time interest of Pettit. The behavior of intrinsically disordered proteins and intrinsically disordered domains, where parts of a protein have a disordered shape. So a lot of things will take on, at least in part, a sort of a crystalline structure where it's all quite regular, whereas these are a bit more blobby. It's it's a blobbiness where there's wiggle room, like the difference between a sugar crystal and jam. And they, in fact, use a very sugary analogy when they describe it themselves. It's like adding too much sugar in your tea, Pettit explains. It won't get any sweeter. The sugar must fall out of solution and find a partner, precipitating into a lump. And to give a bit of, kind of context to this, they note earlier that about 30% of proteins have intrinsically disordered domains, and... 80% of cancer-related signaling proteins have disordered regions, making them important molecules if you want to understand the progression of 
tumor biology, and they note that transcription factors, which when you mentioned mutations earlier, these are involved in the regulation, the management of where those mutations happen, how the transcription goes smoothly, and excising any mutations that do occur. If then there's a problem in the transcription factors, mutations make it through, and you can see where the step-to-step -step of cancer biology starts to come into play. And all of that they decided to call kinky. Well, it's about kinks. Do you think I could get away with playing The Kinks? Maybe the song Kinky Boots? That was a fun musical. And I will have one final word from this press release. The final line, in fact. When it comes to uncovering the mysteries of biology on the tiniest scales, nothing quite beats a giant supercomputer. I mean, honestly, if you can only work out what you're trying to work out by modelling it, nothing does beat a giant supercomputer. We'll come back to that later, modelling. <laughs> Not me, personally. We don't get to see those websites, but there's some interesting sociology coming up later. But first things first, a new word that I'd, I'd not encountered before, and I've encountered lots of interesting words doing this podcast. This one, I think, is maybe my favourite. The necrobiome. Obviously, it is his favourite because he's a goth of oh, yes. um, many years standing. The necrobiome, as explained in this release from the Society for Experimental Biology... The unique community of bacteria associated with dead and decaying organisms. Which is pretty metal. Necrobiome probably should be like a goth Eden project. We've got all of these plants here. Not that it matters. Nothing really matters. Here we've got our black roses. Over there. The nightshade. But anyway, what's the significance of the necrobiome? Well, it turns out it's bad for you. As you might expect a giant pile of rotting biological matter to be, it's not pleasant to think about, and it's also unpleasant for any fish who happen to live in a waterway where that necrobiome is starting to build up. Dr. Paul Craig, whose research team from the University of Waterloo, Canada, know that Basically, they're in a swamp. A tiny, gross, dead thing swamp. And it's not good for your health. Dr. Craig and his team measured the metabolic rates of fish living in the path of wastewater effluent and fish living in clean water and found that the poo fish, as I'm going to call them, <laughs> the poo fish, had a higher metabolic rate um, at rest suggests that they're having to use more energy to fight off potential infections from all this that's in their river. Sometimes quite literally. Often quite literally. That's what effluent is, mostly. Um, they also found that within about a week of being moved into clean water, these same fish were back down to normal metabolic levels. But a note made by co-author Dr. Andrew Doxey is that the fish that lived in the contaminated waters, the poo fish, if you will, were particularly enriched in the pathogenic bacteria most associated with human infections, including bacteria that cause food poisoning, such as Clostridium perfringens. Which does mean that, for example, if you go fishing in the river downstream of the sewage treatment plant, you... The odds are against you. If you well, if you're going to let the fish go, you need to wash your hands very thoroughly afterwards. If you're planning to eat the fish, don't. Just don't. It's just best not. 
find a better fishing spot. Mm, tasty, tasty necrobiome. Happily, many of the wastewater facilities feeding into Dr. Craig's study site are currently being upgraded. The plan is to continue investigating the effect that this has as the as the condition of the water improves. Hopefully, so will the condition of the fish. Our next story brings together kinky biology and water into a wonderful title. Diatoms have sex after all, and ammonium puts them in the mood. This sensual research comes to us in the journal PLOS One from Oregon State University. Corresponding author Kimberly Halsey describes, well, she has a great passion for diatoms. It really comes through in the way she talks about them. Our discoveries solve two persistent mysteries that have plagued diatom researchers, and I imagine their work has been long and hard, the diatom research community. And she says, yes, they have sex. And yes, we can make them do it. Emphasis is Will's own. Now, it seems that for a very long time, diatom researchers have just assumed that these microscopic algae do all their reproduction asexually. They don't do any of that messy mixing and recombining of DNA. Certainly none of that kinky stuff. But various species do still possess the necessary DNA to carry out meiosis, which is the form of cell division you get when you're making cells for sexual reproduction, such as eggs and sperm. It splits a single cell into four cells, which each have half of the original amount of DNA in them. And when scientists had been looking at these meiosis-capable cells, they thought, oh, that's probably just a genetic throwback. It's probably nothing. Uh, we've never seen them have sex before, so we'll just continue under the assumption that they don't. But diatoms, as an organism, hold great potential as a source of bioenergy and for biosensing, which I'm assuming is... If there's a sudden algal bloom, you can tell a lot about the water they're growing in. If a bunch of algae die off, you can also tell a lot about the water they're growing in. So it would be quite useful to be able to crossbreed them in much the same way we do with many of our food crops and pets. I mean, dogs are a, an absolutely spectacular example of the power of selective breeding. Kimberly Halsey is definitely excited about this. We have worked out that the centric Thalassiosera pseudonana diatom, which is a diatom possessing a rotational symmetry, they quite often look like tins of vegetables. They come in all kinds of shapes and sizes, do diatoms. Uh, Halsey earlier mentions their silica frustules as beautiful and exquisite. And I'll put some pictures in the links because they are all very geometrically pleasing, like a nice, neat cylinder or pyramid shape. Like it's all very, very well put together. But yes, the T. pseudonana, being as it is a diatom which has been noted before for having these genes necessary for meiosis. So, in investigating these particular diatoms, it was noted that in the population a lot of unexpected morphologies started appearing, things that wouldn't turn up or wouldn't turn up anywhere near so quickly if they were just reproducing by asexual means and not sharing DNA with one another, as happens in sexual reproduction. So they must be doing the do. 
well, graduate student Eric Moore, who is uh, one of the lead authors, was convinced his cultures were contaminated before he realised what was going on. The single-celled organisms differentiating themselves into, I mean, it says male and female cells, it's sort of egg-like cells and sperm-like cells, I guess. Slot A, tab B. Yep, and completely changing their morphologies. Which means that they are brooding, but we didn't expect that. Which leads to a lab full of people, I hope, all sat round little petri dishes trying to make their diatoms frisky in a microscopic way, using all kinds of different ways to try and trigger that behaviour. Everything from changes to pH, to changes in temperature, changes in elevation. And Kimberly Halsey does note... Lab efforts to induce sex in centric diatoms have ranged from sweet talk to torture. She sounds like a riot. If you're going to pick someone to work with, I think picking the person who has been sweet-talking and torturing diatoms, you're going to have an exciting time, one way or another. It's almost disappointing they didn't get away with calling this one the kinky biology paper. But it turns out that amongst all of the conditions that could possibly trigger sexual behaviour in diatoms, what they want, or what they need, is bleach. Or at least ammonia. When ammonia is present in their environment, along with at least one other stressing factor, so a lack of light, phosphorus or silica, trigger the diatoms to... Get their groove on. As you mentioned earlier, this could lead to diatom breeding this could lead to their use as biosensors or as a biofuel but i'm not sure i want to be the guy who clocks in at work says okay time to make those tiny plants get all hot in their microscopic pants hand me the bleach but it's okay you don't have to be because other people are already finding out how to do it and they at least seem to be very excited about what they've learned. Kimberly Halsey, we salute you. If you'd like to talk to us more about your somewhat perverse attitude towards microscopic organisms, then you can reach us anytime at Eureka Nerdcast on Twitter or Eureka Nerdcast at gmail.com. I'm honestly really excited by your enthusiasm and would love to talk to you about diatom sex. Moving on! <laughs> Moving on to more sea life on a uh, much bigger scale than tiny, tiny diatoms. How about seven million tons of shrimp? Or at least seven million tons of mollusk shells discarded, thrown away every year by the seafood industry as unwanted waste in landfills or dumped at sea, which Dr. James Morris, the team of cachet reservists from the Royal Belgian Institute of Natural Sciences, say could maybe even save the world. Yes, and I hate to spoil your fun, but a shrimp is in no way a mollusk. A shrimp is 100% a crustacean. The shellfish you're thinking of are things like mussels and oysters. All gross. I mean... All unwelcome on my plate and in my home. But there are plenty of people who think they are absolutely delicious. Enough to make seven tons of them. I do, in fact, know at least one person who hates basically all other seafood really likes mussels. I mean, I guess sometimes you do just need some delicious snot. But the side effect of people eating tons and tons of shellfish... Is the tons and tons of shells. Is the tons and tons of shells. 
reading through this earlier, I it really struck me that no one had thought of this before. The main thrust of this article is that all these shells, instead of being dumped in landfill where they're not doing anybody any good, can be used as an alternative to mining limestone because it's the same stuff, chemically speaking. A seashell is merely pre-limestone. Limestone is seashells from millions of years ago which have been squashed a bit. Seashells plus time equals limestone. Literally. So why has no one thought of this before? I think that's the thing that really is getting me. We're spending lots of money digging limestone out of the ground when oysters are just out there building it. Ah, yes, well, all the landfills are full. So then we take the oysters, chuck them down into the holes that we've made, getting the limestone out of, bury it again, come back to it in, like, 10,000 years, and we'll have some more limestone. Makes absolute (laughs) sense. I mean, it's it's like making loo roll straight from a tree rather than recycling some other paper that somebody's used already. Altogether, a bad idea. Or at least an idea which someone might have got to sooner, you'd think. That's, yeah, that's my point. I think that someone would have come upon this idea sooner. But as someone's actually come out and said it, let's not just bin all these shells, let's actually make use of them. And the other significant suggestion, other than just not digging up so much limestone, when we can just use the calcium carbonate that shellfish are out there just making as a side effect of life, is to use emptied out oyster shells to rebuild oyster beds. Rebuild the Great Barrier Reef, why not? I mean, we'd also need to like stop heating up the sea to help that. We can do both. Uh, Yeah, not spending energy on limestone mining quite so much will help with that. Mm. So we salute you, Dr. James Morris. Thanks for seeing sense in pre-lime, I guess. Pre-lime sounds like a cocktail, except I don't want any shellfish in it. I think you can get those. I'm sure there's somebody who's made, like, an oyster martini. (sighs) I'm sure I've heard about that. I mean, it seems revolting to me. But I don't like any seafood at all. I'm going to move on swiftly to our next story. That lead exposure in early childhood, such as the huge amount of lead that have been floating around in corrupted water pipes in Michigan for the last while, uh, decreased lead exposure is found to be significantly responsible for a drop in crime rate among children who are exposed to it at a young age. Now, it has been noted previously, not as such by us, but in science in general, that increased lead exposure in early childhood, that's up to about the age of six, increases the chances of that child being suspended from school, ending up in sort of juvenile correctional systems. And once you've started on that trajectory, it's a pretty hard habit to break, and they're therefore much more likely to end up in prison as adults. And it's also been noted that over the last 30 or 40 years, the overall crime rates have dropped. This particularly looking at the US in the way that many things do. It has been suggested that lead exposure is a significant factor in this. 
the press release is at pains to point out that there are many other factors involved. So it took some real strategy to filter them out. Factors which Janet Curie of Princeton University, the Henry Putnam Professor of Economics and Public Affairs, suggested might be getting in the way were increased availability of abortions, improved policing, the growth of prison population generally, and the waning of the crack cocaine epidemic from the mid-70s to 80s. These were, you know, overlapping and concurrent. On top of the phasing out of lead from fuels. So the research involved a lot of work to ensure that these factors were corrected for. And it took place in Rhode Island, a survey of 120,000 children born in Rhode Island, which, Professor Curry notes, is an ideal place to study the effects of lead because of the state's aggressive lead screening program. Nearly three quarters of Rhode Island children have been screened at least once by the time they reach one and a half years of age, far above the national average. And by looking at children born from 1990, shortly after the phasing out of leaded gasoline up till 2014, and corresponding that to the Rhode Island Department of Health blood lead level tests for preschool children from 1994 to 2014, you can start to pin together the definite causal link between lead exposure in youth and increased likelihood of being on the wrong side of the law as an adult. So they made sure to take into account the amount of lead exposure the children likely had by marking out how near major roads they were living, the general levels of lead in the soil at different distances from major roads, and cross-linking all of their data as well with school suspension records and juvenile detention records, um, which began respectively in the 2007-2008 school year and 2004. And taking all of this into account... They've come to the conclusion that a single unit increase in blood lead levels raised the probability a child would be suspended from school by 6.4 to 9.3%. And linking that to the existing data that children who have been suspended are around 10 times more likely to be involved in criminal activity as adults, it can be inferred that reductions in blood lead levels do have a a significant effect on overall crime rates. And now we move on to a title which I think is just weaponizing all of the Wimbledon hysteria that's out there right now, because it's going to take a lot for me to try and resolve these two ideas side by side. Into the quantum world with a tennis racket. Except unlike many of the stories we cover which involve quantum as a concept... This one is actually nearly comprehensible. I can just about kind of keep up with the step-by-step, but I feel like there's still something missing. I get from A to B, but it's the difference between C to D and then C to 12. I'm like, I... hmm? So the thrust of the research is that quantum technology is going to be a very important thing to sort of develop and get on top of as we go further. It offers lots of opportunities for very high security stuff, for very fast communications, but physics at the quantum level is weird and unpredictable, as we've sort of covered before. I mean, that's kind of like the grand promise of quantum, is that it's going to do amazing things for everyone as soon as we can kind of understand it, which we don't, so... 
but the research has managed to connect a a phenomenon in classical physics that you could probably demonstrate right now if you've got some sports equipment in the garage which is when you flip a tennis racket in the air because its shape is inherently unstable i think is the the air moving through the tennis racket strings makes tiny disturbances and vortices and what have so if you're just flipping the tennis racket end to end handle over top it will also rotate in the other direction as it goes because of this weird physical instability in it. Having a quick Google for this turns up the Intermediate Axis Theorem with a couple of YouTube videos explaining that. If you just search for tennis racket spin, you get lots of people trying to sell you tennis rackets for like hundreds, if not thousands of dollars because it'll do a spin thing. I guess I'm not a sport. I mean, if it's made out of the most cutting-edge materials, it's uh, lighter and stronger, I guess? I don't I don't know. A cutting-edge tenant racket sounds like a great way to ruin a game. If it's your serve and all you get is... <laughs> a thousand shards of what was a tennis ball descending upon you in a big cloud. All the ball boys and ball girls, like, what am I supposed to do with this? Rushing out with a Do dust I just pan and brush. Do all of it up? <laughs> well, anyway, this research, which is looking to kind of bridge classical physics with quantum physics, comes to us from the Technical University of Munich and is reported by Stephen Glazer, professor in the Department of Chemistry there. Where tennis rackets and quantum particles meet in the middle here is that quanta also possess this degree of spin that makes them behave similarly to a thrown tennis racket. I'm going to pull a quick quote here from Stephen Glazer, who says that utilising quantum effects in a technical manner by influencing the behaviour of particles through electromagnetic fields required the fastest possible methods to detect fault-tolerant controlled sequences. I'm going to break down some of the, what those long words mean there. The tennis racket analogy, having one thing thrown in the air, spinning around in surprising ways, the strings of the tennis racket in this way are the electromagnetic fields. Sure, why not? And the fault-tolerant control sequences that she describes are basically figuring out all the ways in which the tennis racket won't move predictably. Yeah, in a real tennis racket, Glazer says there's tiny deviations and perturbations in the toss, the different moments of inertia along the three axes of an asymmetrical body, this intermediate axis theorem again. But by understanding the spin of a tennis racket and applying that to the spin of quantum particles, then apparently you can visualize the development of reliable control sequences in quantum technology and accelerate them significantly, which is good. I mean, if we're working on the idea that we can't develop reliable quantum computing until we can reliably predict the behavior of the quantum particles it's working with, then yes, absolutely. Or goes a bit heart of gold otherwise. The second someone cracks that technology, I'm fighting to be front of the queue. <laughs> I don't care that it's going to get real weird. I'm keen to live in a world where all of Douglas Adams' wildest dreams have come true. Well, we've already got the largest simulated universe so far in last week's episode. Yep. And everyone and their mums has got a Kindle, so... At a probability of 2,734 to 1 and reducing. Well, that's about all we've got time for. There may be a few quick stories to tide you over until we meet you next time. 
such as the shocking revelations from the Canadian Medical Association Journal that patients whose emergency surgery is delayed are at a higher risk of death. That's kind of the definition of an emergency. And on a similar Wimbledon note, if you want to know who's going to win, whoever starts off with the lowest pitch grunt seems to be predominantly the one who wins out in the end, according to the University of Sussex. Now, is that per game or just pitch of grunts overall in general? Because if it's in general, surely that just indicates that the bigger person is more likely to win. Shall we get Hafthor Bjornsson to come and have a go at tennis? The mountain who serves. <laughs> His speed might be somewhat compromised. If anyone can return a serve from the mountain... It's just going to make use of having like extraordinarily long arms. I was going to say it's going a bit Mario Tennis today with like the flaming power serve, but then you came <laughs> where you've got like the noodly arms and he can stretch out and do that. Not noodly, just because he's a real big dude. He's got long limbs. That's how that works. Yeah, but to get back against that, you've got to be that ramen girl. I don't want to be a noodle girl. This episode not brought to you by Nintendo Switch and Arms, which is out now. But if Nintendo do want to sponsor us, then they can find us at Eureka Nerdcast on Twitter or send word to us at Eureka Nerdcast at gmail.com. That's Eureka Nerdcast at gmail.com. If Nintendo want to leave an iTunes review or comments, they're welcome to. If you want to leave an iTunes review or comments, that'd be very nice as well. Because it's really the only way to help other people find us unless you're physically going out and saying to people, hey, do you want to listen to some people talking about science news. They don't know tennis. No, we don't. And with that, that's bye-bye from me. And goodbye from me. I don't want to be a noodle girl.